0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, October 28th, 2017, episode 45, concerning Magnus Barefoot versus Ireland. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today's text comes from the Heimskringla, Snorri Sturluson's 13th century collection of Norse sagas concerning the Norwegian kings. Dipping into saga literature provides me an occasion, or maybe an excuse, to wax autobiographical. This will be the story of how I got into medieval literature. And if this sounds unpalatably self-indulgent to you... Uh, then feel free to use the chapter feature that's available on most listening devices uh, and skip ahead to the text itself. As a kid, I was really into fantasy. One of the first medieval classes I took in grad school, um, which we'll come to more about in a few minutes, uh, on one of the first days, we students were gathered around a photocopier uh, getting copies of the passage we were going to have to translate for that evening, uh, a battle with a troll from Hrolf saga Kraka, if I recall correctly, And we got to talking about trolls and troll battles, which led to talk of Tolkien, and someone made the very astute, if perhaps blindingly obvious, observation that Tolkien is a gateway drug to medieval studies. And that's certainly true, though in my case, it proceeded by a rather roundabout path. I loved The Hobbit. I read it at least once, if not twice a year, from third grade to probably around sixth or seventh. I had the Rankin-Bass animated adaptation on VHS and Storybook Cassette, uh, and I could probably recite most of its scenes near verbatim, um, or at least I could say them along with the film pretty convincingly. However, I never quite graduated to The Lord of the Rings. I knew the basics of the plot from the rather painful and incomplete Ralph Bakshi version, and the Rankin-Bass attempt to complete the story with their animated Return of the King, mainly... I liked Bilbo. I identified with Bilbo. Frodo was an interloper, and I didn't understand why I ought to care about him, and so I never made it much past the first 50 pages or so of Fellowship of the Ring. And I didn't end up reading the books all the way through until the summer before Peter Jackson's Fellowship came out, uh, when I was 23. So while I was interested in high fantasy, I actually got most of it through movies and games, like Conan the Barbarian, and Dragon Slayer, and Beastmaster, and Willow, and Legend, and the whole canon of '80s sword and sorcery movies. A cousin introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons at a very young age, uh, and even though through childhood I seldom had anyone to actually play with, I collected role-playing game rule books and source books, especially all the various iterations of the D&D monster manuals and similar bestiaries for other games. However. For some reason that I can't quite explain, uh, the novels I was reading throughout childhood skewed towards sci-fi, so I never got into the Black Cauldron books, or Dragon Riders of Pern, or the Rift War series, or many of the other staples. Um, I didn't even read D&D novels. I never cared much for the Arthur myth. I didn't like knights and jousting and what I viewed as sort of a clean Disney courtly fantasy. I liked wizards and monsters and the precisely defined lore of role-playing game worlds. I wanted goblins to be clearly defined in relation to kobolds and bugbears and orcs, dragons neatly divided into color-coded types with distinct abilities, spell systems charted out and described in numerical values, and a lot of lighter fantasy seemed to play real fast and loose with these things. A more whimsical fairy tale than the serious fantasy I preferred. In fact, maybe I do know why most of my broader reading was in sci-fi. Fantasy-wise, The Hobbit and general Middle-earth and Middle-earth-inspired lore were basically sacred texts in my eyes, and other fantasy worlds seemed a bit like bad imitations or tawdry knockoffs. I might have even felt that way about D&D if I hadn't been exposed to it more or less simultaneously alongside The Hobbit. And real Earth paled in comparison to fantasy worlds, too. I wasn't particularly interested in the reality of medieval history or actual medieval stories. Through D&D, I knew the names of lots of weapons and armor pieces and terms for parts of castle architecture, but I wasn't interested in chivalry. I liked castles, and I especially loved the old PC game castles, but I didn't really care about the political conflicts that made them necessary. This changed a bit in high school when I got interested in epidemic disease, of all things, and started reading about not only the contemporary plagues, Ebola and Dengue and Hantavirus, uh, but also the Black Death. I was fascinated with the Black Death, and that combined with the film version of The Name of the Rose, which I quite liked, and probably a bit of the CAD file television series starring Derek Jacobi, which was airing on PBS in the mid-90s, uh, these began to pique my interest in medieval monasticism or really just the medieval Abbey as a setting. As an introverted nerd who spent a lot of time writing, reading, and listening to gloomy orchestral music, mostly movie soundtracks, I think I felt a kind of kinship to a scriptorium monk. One of the first stories I wrote as a teenager that wasn't explicitly science fiction or horror or fantasy was an account of plague victims arriving at a monastery and spreading the disease, devastating the place and leaving a sole survivor who would then wander across a blighted and almost post-apocalyptic landscape, having adventures. Um, I never quite got to the adventures part. Uh, I fancied that this would be a novel, and I didn't quite have the stamina as a teenager to keep working on it. Um, But I've come back to that opening scene at least three other times in my later creative writing student career, um, though I've never felt like I got it right. But that does basically bring us to the end of high school. Senior year of high school, I discovered Flannery O'Connor and Tom Stoppard, and in a kind of one-two punch of modernism and postmodernism, I had literary fiction blown wide open for me in a way it had never been before, and for a long time, my mass-market genre reading essentially dropped to zero outside of the occasional bit of Stephen King. As an undergraduate at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, I double majored in English with a creative writing focus, and Greek and Roman Studies, which was the revamped name for the Classics department. I'd already taken Latin in high school, so I focused on Ancient Greek for my major, which I do not regret. It was fantastic, but I also have to somewhat ruefully acknowledge that having stronger Latin would really help me out now more than having very rusty Greek. Rhodes had, and still has, a mandatory humanities sequence that's a kind of great books course, including a survey of the scriptural texts of different religious traditions, That got me interested in Gnosticism and apocryphal scriptures like the Book of Enoch, as well as the kind of strange thought experiment theological explorations you get in Aquinas and Duns Scotus, basically, those bits of religion that most closely resemble role playing game source books. But still, medieval literature and most aspects of medieval history outside of the Black Death and the rule of St. Benedict largely eluded me. I read Chaucer and Dante and little bits of Mallory for class, but They didn't grab me, much like Lord of the Rings had failed to. So that's a lot about not being interested in the Middle Ages. Uh, There's got to be a turning point, right? Well, there is, or really there are two of them. The first was discovering a musical group that uh, I still really love, though I always feel slightly embarrassed saying their name. Uh, The group is Medieval Babes, an ensemble founded by Catherine Blake. I'm pretty sure I first heard them shortly after I'd graduated from college, uh, probably on the NPR show The Thistle and Shamrock, um, though it may have been on another world music program. But I do know the song I heard was this Kinderly is now me coming into this world with terror and glee. Little and poor is me having, little and sana I fall out from me. Sharp and strong is me dying. Medieval babes use a lot of Middle English lyrics, and their songs really opened me up to hearing and parsing Middle English. Middle English is great because it does feel like learning a foreign language you're suddenly able to make sense of something that to most people will be unintelligible. But it doesn't really require that much work. It's mostly learning a slightly different set of spelling and pronunciation conventions, and a handful of keywords that are no longer used or used differently, and you've pretty much got it. I'd always liked Celtic music, and I tried to teach myself Irish with a book and a tape as a teenager, but I never really made any progress with it that way. Whereas Getting on the wavelength of Middle English was like magic, so that kind of opened up Chaucer to me afresh, as well as the Harley lyrics, which have some wonderfully bizarre songs in them, the kinds of things that don't tend to make it into high school textbooks for the four or five medieval selections they'll include. The second turning point happened at the end of the first semester of my MFA program. I was at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, part of the very first class of creative writing MFA students they had. It was a brand new program. Time came to enroll in spring classes, and I saw a flyer for a comparative lit class called Medieval Mysticism. I had open elective credits, and that title touched the same nerve in me that had had me reading the Nag Hammadi Library and the Gospel of Nicodemus and Duns Scotus, and so I signed up for it and maybe it would have just been a lark and I would have gone back to mostly classes on 20th century modernism and postmodernism, which would be the more typical path for an MFA student. But the teacher of the mysticism class, Mariana Kalinka, announced that she was going to be offering a course in the Old Norse language starting next fall. I heard that and I thought, in what other circumstance would I have the opportunity to take a class like that? I'm here at a big research university where they have the faculty, and the students, to make it possible to offer such a class. I already took a half-dozen different English classes on modernism and postmodernism as an undergrad, and I get that stuff anyway through the curriculum of the writing workshops, so let me go do this thing that I'll likely never have another opportunity to do. So I took the Old Norse class, and I wound up in a small class with a bunch of medievalist grad students, because who else is going to take a class on Old Norse? And getting in with that crowd got me into taking a medieval research methods class with Charlie Wright and a medieval literary theory class with Martin Camargo. And so when I started my PhD at the University of Missouri, again with a primary field of creative writing, I was fully set on medieval literature as my scholarly specialization. And so it is gone. But I got there from an unusual initial route, uh, namely not through an English department, I imagine I'm in a very, very small class of English department people who learned Old Norse before learning Old English. That said, my Old Norse today is about at the level of my ancient Greek, rusting away in the toolshed of my mind. But I was deeply influenced by the saga texts I was introduced to in that class. And yes, I signed up to learn Old Norse without any particular familiarity with the Icelandic sagas or skaldic poetry or the Eddas. I didn't really even know Beowulf beyond the plot or have any real affection for it at the time. Uh, In fact, Grendel was one of those monsters I read about as a kid and found frustrating because he's so vaguely defined. But I liked Professor Kalinka, and I liked the idea of diving into another dead language, which was something I certainly did have experience with. And I did very quickly develop an affection for the sagas. They really appealed to me as a creative writer, and still do. I like the odd combination of how much like a modern novel they can be, especially when compared with the storytelling in verse of Beowulf or Chaucer or Langland, but also how they bend or break or simply ignore some modern conventions. That kind of interplay makes the unfamiliar feel familiar, and the familiar unfamiliar. And that's perhaps, in my personal hierarchy at least, the greatest function of art. An expansion of awareness, both outwards and inwards, of the other, and of the self. Today's text is a saga text, though of a slightly different kind than we usually think of. The label Norse Saga usually connotes the Icelandic family sagas or the legendary sagas. Today, as I said at the start of the show, we're hearing from Snorri Sturluson's *Heimskringla*, which is a collection of sagas of the Norwegian kings. It's a more self-consciously historical project, which in some ways has more in common with William of Malmesbury or Geoffrey of Monmouth than with the oral traditions of the family sagas. But it is still written in Old Norse or Old Icelandic, and it utilizes the basic storytelling register of the saga style. And I think you can feel a bit of that in today's text. The storytelling by modern aesthetic conventions feels here just a little less stiff than we get in most of our Latin chroniclers. Or I think so, anyway. Now, it's not necessarily a radical difference, uh, especially in today's particular selection. Uh, And indeed, the opening few paragraphs will sound like they could come straight out of a typical Latin chronicle or royal history. But there's one moment I'll single out, though I'm not going to tell you what it is beforehand. Uh, We can sort of test if it grabs you like it did me. It might not. As I said, this moment in isolation is perhaps not that radical, um, but I find that in the flow of the narrative, it has a special effect. I think it signals a different kind of narration than we usually get in most medieval prose. But enough teasing, let's get to that text. We're about to hear Snorri's account of the final days of King Magnus Barefoot's reign. We got a synopsis of these events in last episode's text from the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris, but the great Icelandic historian gives us a more detailed and vivid picture. Snorri is writing in the early 1200s, so he's over a century removed from these events, which we might keep in mind as we think about where all this vivid detail comes from. I don't think we need a whole lot of context notes, uh, except perhaps for one. The saga gives us the Irish king Merkiartan, which is the Norse form of the Irish name Merihyrtach, which is anglicized as Murrow or Murtaugh, which is the name under which we met him last episode in connection with Magnus' invasion of Ireland, Uh, and he's a figure that shows up in a number of sagas. You might recall that the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris claimed that Magnus left Norway after being warned in a dream vision to do so by St. Olaf. Snorri does not include any such motivating incident. His Magnus just set sail to shore up his claims in the British Isles and to add to them where possible, namely by invading Ireland. And without further ado, here is Snorley Sturluson's account of that invasion, from The Saga of Magnus Barefoot, as contained in the Hames Kringla, and translated in the 19th century by Samuel Lang. When King Magnus had been nine years King of Norway, he equipped himself to go out of the country with a great force. He sailed out into the West Sea with the finest men who could be got in Norway. All the powerful men of the country followed him, such as Sigurd Rannesson, Vidkun Jonsson, Dag Elifsson, Serg of Song, Eivind Alborga, and the King's Marshal Ulf brother of Sigurd, and many other great men. With all this armament, the king sailed west to the Orkney Islands, from whence he took with him Earl Erland's sons, Magnuson and Erling, and then sailed to the Southern Hebrides. But as he lay under the Scotch land, Magnus Erlinson ran away in the night from the king's ship, swam to the shore, escaped into the woods, and came at last to the Scotch king's court. King Magnus sailed to Ireland with his fleet and plundered there. King Mirkiartan came to his assistance, and they conquered a great part of the country, both Dublin and Dublinshire. King Magnus was in winter up in Connacht with King Merkjartan, but set men to defend the country he had taken. Toward spring, both kings went westward with their army all the way to Ulster, where they had many battles, subdued the country, and had conquered the greatest part of Ulster when Merkjartan returned home to Connacht. Magnus rigged his ships and intended returning to Norway, but set his men to defend the country of Dublin. He lay at Ulster ready for sea with his whole fleet, As they thought they needed cattle for ship provision, King Magnus sent a message to King Merkiartan, telling him to send some cattle for slaughter, and appointed the day before Bartholomew's day as the day they should arrive, if the messengers reached him in safety. But the cattle had not made their appearance the evening before Bartholomew's mass. On the mass day itself, when the sun rose in the sky, King Magnus went on shore himself with the greater part of his men, to look after his people and to carry off cattle from the coast. The weather was calm. The sun shone, and the road lay through mires and mosses, and there were paths cut through, but there was brushwood on each side of the road. When they came somewhat farther, they reached a height from which they had a wide view. They saw from it a great dust rising up in the country, as of horsemen, and they said to each other, That must be the Irish army. But others said it was their own men returning with the cattle. They halted there, and Avendolbulga said, How, sire, do you intend to direct the march? The men think we are advancing imprudently. You know the Irish are treacherous. Think, therefore, of a good counsel for your men. Then the king said, Let us draw up our men and be ready, if there be treachery. This was done, and the king and Avond went before the line. King Magnus had a helmet on his head, a red shield in which was inlaid a gilded lion, and was girt with a sword called legbit of which the hilt was of ivory, and handgrip wound about with gold thread, and the sword was extremely sharp. In his hand he had a short spear, and a red silk short cloak over his coat, on which, both before and behind, was embroidered a lion in yellow silk, and all men acknowledged that they had never seen a brisker, statelier man. Avend had also a red silk cloak like the king's, and he also was a stout, handsome, warlike man. When the dust cloud approached nearer, they knew their own men, who were driving the cattle. The Irish king had been faithful to the promise he had given the king, and had sent them. Thereupon they all turned towards the ships, and it was midday. When they came to the mires, they went but slowly over the boggy places. And then the Irish started up on every side against them from every bushy point of land, and the battle began instantly. The northmen were going divided in various heaps, so that many of them fell. Then Avon said to the king, Unfortunate is this march to our people, and we must instantly hit upon some good plan. The king answered, Call all the men together with the war horns under the banner, and the men who are here shall make a rampart with their shields, and thus we will retreat backwards out of the mires, and we will clear ourselves fast enough when we get upon firm ground. The Irish shot boldly, and although they fell in crowds, there came always two in the place of one. Now when the king had come to the nearest ditch, there was a very difficult crossing, and few places were passable, so that many northmen fell there. Then the king called to his linderman, Thorgrim Skenhova, who was an upland man, and ordered him to go over the ditch with his division. We shall defend you, said he, in the meantime, so that no harm shall come to you. "'Go out then to those homes and shoot at them from thence, for ye are good bowmen.' When Thorgrim and his men came over the ditch, they cast their shields behind their backs, and set off to the ships. When the king saw this, he said, "'Thou art deserting thy king in an unmanly way. I was foolish in making thee a linderman, and driving Sigurd Hund out of the country, for never would he have behaved so.' King Magnus received a wound, being pierced by a spear through both thighs above the knees. The king laid hold of the shaft between his legs, broke the spear in two, and said, Thus we break spear shafts, my lads. Let us go briskly on. Nothing hurts me. A little after, King Magnus was struck in the neck with an Irish axe, and this was his death wound. Then those who were behind fled. Vidkun Jonsson instantly killed the man who had given the king his death wound and fled after having received three wounds, but brought the king's banner and the sword legbit to the ships. Vidkun was the last man who fled. The other next to him was Sigurd Hraneson, and the third before him Dag Elifsson. There fell with King Magnus Avend Olbolga, Ulf and many other great people. Many of the northmen fell, but many more of the Irish. The northmen who escaped sailed away immediately in autumn. Erling, Earl Erlin's son, fell with King Magnus in Ireland, but the men who fled from Ireland came to the Orkney Islands. Now when King Sigurd heard that his father had fallen, he set off immediately, leaving the Irish king's daughter behind, and proceeded in autumn with the whole fleet directly to Norway. King Magnus was ten years king of Norway, and in his days there was good peace kept within the country but the people were sorely oppressed with levies. King Magnus was beloved by his men, but the bonds thought him harsh. The words have been transmitted from him that he said, when his friends observed that he proceeded incautiously when he was on his expeditions abroad, The kings are made for honor, not for long life. King Magnus was nearly thirty years of age when he fell. Vidkun did not fly until he had killed the man who gave the king his mortal wound, and for this cause King Magnus's sons had him in the most affectionate regard. So thus ended the reign of Magnus Barefoot of Norway. The line that stands out to me in this account is, The weather was calm, the sun shone, and the road lay through the mires and mosses, and there were paths cut through. That's a storyteller setting a scene. That's what we call in the creative writing biz, immersive detail. It makes you pause and visualize the scene. In the modern writing workshop, we'd probably ask for some auditory or olfactory details too to round out the sense image, But even lacking those, this is one of those novelistic moments that you find in the sagas that just seems to be playing by slightly different rules than most of our other medieval prose. Now, you could find similar statements in our Latin chronicles. They will sometimes describe the weather before a battle, but most of the time if they do, it's because the weather made a material difference in the course or outcome of the battle. I think what makes Snorri's description feel so modern to me is that it's unnecessary detail from a historical or expository point of view. It's there to have an aesthetic effect, to evoke a particular kind of narrative experience. Now, true, you might argue that the description of the peaceful weather is not a pointless detail because it's meant to convey the lack of trepidation on the part of Magnus's troops, that it didn't seem like a dangerous day, making the attack all the more shocking when it comes. And no doubt there's some truth to that. But I think even that is an artistic effect more than an historiographic one. Again, as an isolated example, maybe it doesn't provide an especially strong case. But taken as part of a larger stylistic pattern that you see if you read more of the sagas, I think it does highlight a feature of the sagas that's distinctive from most of the Latin narrative writing of the same period. And you see it too in the saga's willingness to provide comparatively detailed and naturalistic descriptions of characters. Most medieval historians, if they provide a physical description at all, usually do so only in very general and stereotypical terms. There are exceptions, of course, but this is the common approach to personal description. The sagas are at least a bit more likely to give you somewhat more rounded and distinctive portraits of their main characters. To offer an oversimplified cross-cultural comparison, The Latin chronicles are kind of like Greek statuary, where everything is idealized and filtered through a set of refined but narrow paradigms, whereas the sagas are a bit more Roman, more naturalistic and idiosyncratic, though not necessarily more accurate. They possess a representational verisimilitude, but not necessarily truth itself. But I should be more careful about calling some saga features modern or novelistic, They ought to be properly described as saga-like. Our vocabulary pushes us into anachronism. The problem is partly psychological. When encountering something new, when you recognize traits that seem similar to things you're more familiar with, you tend to overemphasize that similarity and to assume they possess a sameness that they do not. When we read Greek drama, we can't help but try to make it into another form of modern theater, or at least Shakespeare. When we read the sagas, we can't help but think in terms of novels. Certainly, that was how I first experienced the sagas in those early grad school classes. But I have to say that now, recently coming back to reading sagas after several years focused on Latin chronicles, now I'm seeing the sagas as much more chronicle-like than I had before. They no longer stand out as exceptions to the rule of medieval prose, but are part of the landscape of medieval prose, a form existing alongside rather than in advance of or in exception to the other forms of narrative. When you take creative writing classes, you are often given this narrative of the progress of literary technique, a story of discovery and invention. It's the story of writers enhancing their craft, generation by generation, inching step by step towards perfection, a perfection that's always framed in terms of realism, of a more precise representation of the world, or at least human experience of the world. It is technique as technology, which advances by sequential improvement upon itself. And this narrative of innovation and craft basically reaches its apotheosis in the psychological realism of high modernism. After that, we're done. We at last have the complete tool set for narrative. Now, writers really only have two choices. They can continue writing essentially the modernist novel or short story... Immersive detail, the rule of show don't tell, first person or third person limited points of view, an essentially realistic representation of experience or the psychology of experience, uh, even if it's a fantastical experience like waking up transformed into an insect or discovering that you're the child of wizards with a special destiny. These are the perfected techniques, which have become essentially invisible conventions, fully naturalized into what we expect a written story to be like which is why the only other option for a writer is to go postmodernist or experimentalist and create work that tries to expose the artifice of these techniques. Because there's nothing else to improve on, so the only radical thing you can do is dismantle. That said, this view of literature probably crested in the 80s with the last vestiges of the critics of the greatest generation about a decade before I was actually taking my first undergraduate writing classes. But Those critics have cast a long shadow, especially over the writing workshop, and this sentiment has been rolling back only slowly. During my master's program, I once went to a craft talk by fiction writer Robert Olin Butler, whose work I rather like, I should say, but his lecture was all about scenic technique and visualizing point of view as a camera with descriptions that pan across a scene, zooming in and zooming out. The importance of not breaking point of view, of maintaining the integrity of the immersive fictional dream, of adhering to that inviolable dictum of show, don't tell. Uh, I believe he used the opening scene of Great Expectations as his example, Um, so not even taking us all the way to modernism, and also using a pre-cinematic work as an example of cinematic technique, which is an interesting question in its own right. Well, I'd been reading Icelandic sagas that semester— and so during the Q&A, I raised my hand and asked, "You know, your advice seems great for stories that fit the mold of Victorian bourgeois realism, but what do you make of something like the Norse sagas, which use a lot of telling alongside showing? Is there a place for other modes of storytelling? And Butler's answer was, well, the sagas are very interesting, of course, but they're not literature. That last phrase, they're not literature, I'm pretty sure I have verbatim. My memory's pretty clear on that moment. Uh, The rest of his response is fuzzier in my mind, and I may be doing him some disservice in this paraphrase. But as I understood it, what he claimed was that pretty much all pre-modern prose narrative was a kind of proto-literature, an embryonic form that would not attain maturity until a few centuries yet to come. These were stories written by people who just hadn't yet learned how to write a story properly. This really rankled me, and struck me as very condescending to the past, for one thing. And I've seen echoes of this sentiment in plenty of creative writing textbooks, who introduce point of view basically saying that earlier writers used omniscient point of view because limited point of view hadn't been invented yet. But once the 19th century worked out how to do it in 3rd Limited, then omniscient goes on the rubbish heap, only to be trotted out these days by writers who are trying to be deliberately or ironically old-fashioned, or by writers of children's tales, or by naive, untrained writers who have not yet been properly instructed in the principles of their craft, who default to omniscience because it is the primitive, immature form of point of view. Now, to be fair to Robert Olin Butler, his audience for that craft lecture was mostly undergrad writing students. And there is something to the idea that you need to learn to follow the rules, or the dominant aesthetic conventions of your age, uh, you have to follow those rules before you break them. According to which principle, violating show-don't-tell is something that should only be attempted, or maybe even acknowledged, by advanced initiates in the secret Gnostic order of master fiction writers. Though, despite my snarkiness, uh, I have to admit I can't dismiss that principle entirely out of hand. I also have to admit that there is, of course, some truth to the narrative of innovation in literary technique, but I'd want to compare it less to improvements in computational technology or engineering and set it instead alongside innovations in, say, realism in painting. You can certainly trace the invention and introduction of perspective techniques and lighting and shading techniques as a historical process, And it is fair to say that medieval illustrators tended to produce rather flat images with rather unrealistic scale between elements, um, at least partly because they hadn't learned a method for rendering a vanishing point. Though a question that should go along with that, an unanswerable question, alas, is whether they would have wanted to use a consistent vanishing point even if they had that in their toolbox. Perhaps they were working in a cultural or aesthetic mode that wasn't handicapped by lacking three-dimensional perspective, but rather didn't want it and didn't need it, at least not for those particular artistic purposes. And if you look at the history of painting, what happens to the progress of technique? Well, you do eventually get to nearly photorealistic representations of a scene, kind of perfection of realism. And then photography comes along. And suddenly the cultural cachet of that technique, its preeminence, is shot. But painting doesn't end. Uh, It isn't usurped by photography, but it embraces a different set of aesthetic values beyond realist representation. And indeed, you get a resurgence of primitivism, a term I don't like very much, but certainly is relevant to embracing the conventions of earlier forms or forms that start from a different set of cultural conventions. Anyway, my point, such as it is, is that painting has largely ditched this notion of a hierarchy of technique that's laid out on an ever-upward path of refinement and improvement, and embraced a kind of landscape of techniques that continue off in all directions, both up and down all kinds of timelines. A similar thing is happening right now at an accelerated pace in video games. For decades, the narrative of game design was one of continual technological improvement, Literal technological improvement, uh, both in terms of sound and graphics, but also gameplay concepts. And game designers and gamers pretty much all embraced that vision that new possibilities were almost always superior possibilities, with older games being admired, but nonetheless defined by and judged by their limitations, limitations blown away by the newer technologies. The dominant viewpoint really did seem to be. Why would anyone prefer to play a new game with 8-bit graphics when you could have full 32-bit Technicolor? Why would you want to have 2D sprites running around when you could have 3D models running around, unless it was because of limitations of your platform or your budget? But in the last few years, gaming has experienced this major retro renaissance, which is another term I don't like because it implies that one might make or play a new 8-bit game primarily because it scratches some nostalgic itch rather than, for what I think is often the case, that an 8-bit style has its own aesthetic virtues, independent of warm, fuzzy childhood memories. But anyway, the end result is that the aesthetic and ludic landscape of gaming is also now far richer and more diverse than it was a decade ago. This is also happening now in fiction, especially in its relationship to the creative writing classroom, which for literary fiction especially, remains incredibly strong and practically inseparable. However, we're still very much in transition. But expanding our conceptions of techniques is one reason why I have my 21st century writing students read Icelandic sagas and Greek myths and chansons de geste and listen to surviving examples of traditional oral storytelling and break down both Scottish ballads and contemporary narrative songs. It's to introduce a spectrum of technique or not spectrum. Spectrum is too linear, an array of technique. And, you know, these are modern students, and some of them, maybe even most of them, don't really like the medieval stuff. They greatly prefer the immersive detail and naturalistic dialogue of realist fiction. And that's fine. At least they can make a knowing choice in embracing their preferred conventions. They can recognize them as conventions, as artistic choices, and not just a naturalized default THE way to write fiction. Okay, well, I guess that concludes the 6th grade book report I might call That's What the Sagas Mean to Me. If you liked the little taste of saga text you got in this episode, I'd encourage you to go check out the Saga Thing podcast with John and Andy. They've covered 10 whole sagas so far and are currently looking at some of the Thater, or short stories, and it's a great show that you should be listening to if you aren't already. Proceeding to the next item in our agenda, our mystery word from last episode was lob, L-O-B. Pretty simple. L-O-B, lob. There are two lobs that merit our attention. One is an Old English word meaning spider, which also appears as lop with a P. Seems like it ought to be connected to cop and cob, which are also Old English words for spider, hence uh, adder cop, which Tolkien employs, or cobweb. But there doesn't seem to be any direct etymological connection between cop and lop or cob and lob. But the lob I want to focus on is primarily a 16th century, early modern English word with medieval roots. Lob in this sense means, as given by the Oxford English Dictionary, quote, a country bumpkin, a clown, or lout. At least that's one sense. It probably is a figurative extension of another sense of lob that means pendulous dangling things or a lump or nugget. And those may also relate indirectly to the aforementioned cob, which could mean a small round object and was used in the plural cobs as a name for testicles, Um, which also doesn't seem to be etymologically directly connected to cod as in codpiece, though no doubt some cross-pollination reinforces similar meanings in similar-sounding words. Uh, Kind of the same similarity principle we talked about earlier. Although lob meaning an oaf is only attested from the 16th century onwards, Shakespeare uses it as one of his insult words, another form, lobber or lubber, goes back to the late Middle Ages appearing in Piers Plowman. And lubber also means an oaf or lout. And yes, that is where the term landlubber comes from. Except, landlubber has a predecessor... Abbey-lubber, a term of abuse for a lazy or idle monk that we see used in Reformation criticism of the debauched monasticism that the Reformers supposed was commonplace. Abbey-lubber appears to be circulating about a century before the first recorded appearance of landlubber, uh, at least as far as the OED's examples go, which we should bear in mind is far from definitive evidence, though it is suggestive. And while we're touching on a maritime connection, one other piece of trivia— You might think that lob has something to do with lobster. A lobster must be something that lobs, right? Just like a trickster is someone who tricks. I assumed that, and I was wrong. Or you might reasonably presume that if it's not related to the verb or to the loutish lobs and lubbers, then perhaps it goes back to that meaning spider. Lob is a word for spider, and what's a lobster if not a big sea spider? It's not a sea spider, there actually are sea spiders, but it is an arthropod, which is close enough for medieval work. Again, though, you would be etymologically wrong, though getting spiritually warmer. Lobster is fundamentally a mutated English version of the Latin locusta, or locust. And the Latin word actually originally meant an aquatic crustacean, namely a lobster, or at least something similar, and became a name for the grasshopper kind of locust, by comparison, the land bug gets its name from its resemblance to the sea bug. In French, the C sound in locust becomes a G, as in langouste, and somehow in English it morphs into initially a P sound. We first see Lopester and Lopester, and then later lobster with a B. The str ending comes from the way the stem word ended in st, which lended itself to assimilation with the existing S-T-R-E feminine noun ending. The feminine stir survives today, retaining its distinctly feminine quality in just one English word, spinster. Spinster was a woman who spun wool. It didn't get its sense as an older unmarried woman until the 17th century. And spinster stands in contrast to spinner, which was the male counterpart, or a gender unmarked counterpart at least. Originally, occupation words like webster and brewster and seamster were marked as feminine. They were trades largely performed by women, uh, with just ER being the masculine form, which we also still see today. Weber, brewer, uh, and less commonly, seamer. But as more men began to participate in trades that had most commonly been known under the feminine form, The distinction between the plain masculine ER and the feminine S-T-E-R broke down and lost its gendered significance, so much so that when the gender ratio in some of those professions flipped again later on in history back to women, an ostensibly redundant feminine ending was reattached. Hence, seamster, whose originally feminine marker had lost its meaning, is turned into seamstress to reinforce a gendered distinction for female seamsters. Now, we're getting a bit lost on a tangent, and I'll also confess that the seamstress thing uh, is something I'm paraphrasing from an old episode of Slate's Lexicon Valley language podcast, which I'd also encourage you to go seek out if you want a proper narrative of that linguistic story rather than my rather butchered paraphrase. Um, I'll put a link to that episode on our website, MedievalDeathtrip.com. I don't think Ray Belli has hit this phenomenon of gendered professions yet on his Words for Granted podcast, but I'd strongly encourage everyone to check it out as well. Uh, especially if you're a linguistics buff. And boy, I'm just full of podcast recommendations today. So while I'm at it, Medieval History for Fun and Profit. It's a relatively new show and they're doing great work. And if you haven't listened yet, you should absolutely check them out too. Add them to your vast menu of great uh, historical podcasts. So anyway, to wrap things up, Lobster turns out to be a false friend in our tree of lop and lob words. But at least we now know that the epithet sea bug basically goes all the way back to antiquity. Okay, we need a new riddle to work on for next time. And here it is. Large is my head, within the parts are small. One foot have I, but that is monstrous tall. And sleep I give, though I sleep not at all. One more time. Large is my head, within the parts are small. One foot have I, but that is monstrous tall. And sleep I give, though I sleep not at all. I'll be back with the answer in a new mystery word next time, which is going to be very, very soon. In fact, it will be our Halloween anniversary episode, uh, which is much closer to this one because technical difficulties have uh, delayed getting this episode finished. Uh, but until then, you can keep in touch through the usual social media methods. We're on Twitter at MDT podcast you can email me at Patrick at and you can get more information including references for this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathtrip.com. So, until next time, take care out there, and thanks for listening.